Hello, and welcome to the Weird Waves podcast. My name is Taylor, and this is episode 49. On this week's podcast, we are talking to Maddie LeBlanc. She's a stand-up paddleboarder and researcher from Canada. This episode is so interesting. You get to see how just one thing can shape your entire life, basically. She saw randomly someone stand-up paddleboarding when she was about 10 years old, and got so involved, and now almost everything she does revolves around stand-up paddleboarding. It's so interesting to hear. She's also doing some fascinating research that we talked about relating to water and children and how it shapes the way they view ecological issues. It's just absolutely fascinating. I really enjoyed this interview, and I hope you guys enjoy it as well. She's back there. <laughs> Thank you. Honestly, the most quiet room in my house is my brother's music studio slash my dad's workshop. So there's actually like a bunch of tools over there. But I always thought like this wall is kind of nice because there's so many cool posters. No, that's awesome. That's cool that you it's probably going to be good audio because you have like an actual music area, you know. Definitely, yeah, it's more soundproof in here, that's for sure. So That's cool. So how did you find us? How did you find us, uh, find the podcast? Yeah, so I found you guys um, because I have a lot of friends that have been on the podcast. Oh, so okay. I've literally, I've listened to all of your episodes with, like, basically any Great Lake surfer. So, um, like, Allie, Ambler, Robin, Shazia, oh, Larry. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I love awesome. all of them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Well, the I always talk about the Canadian Great Lakes surfers. It's a little, like, it's different. You guys are all so, I feel like, connected in this really cool way. It's always, it's just always so unique. And one person always, like, goes, you, you meet the next person somehow, and that's how it kind of, like, that's how, that's how we get people on the podcast. At That's least the right. Canadian surfers, they're like, oh, you should talk to this person. You're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so true. Like, um, right now I'm at Brock and I'm doing my master's there. So in research, <laughs> we call that like the snowball, like sampling effect when okay. you talk to like one person and then they tell you, okay, well, I know somebody else that you can talk to and uh. then you keep getting your data from all those people. So I think, uh, like, just even listening to your past episodes, like, I feel like that's definitely what happened <laughs> with Canadians. Yeah, that is what happened. That's funny. So, <laughs> what are you studying? What what research are you studying? I'm, I'm doing my master's in outdoor recreation in the Faculty of Applied Health Sciences. So, I really get to combine, actually, my passion for stand-up paddleboarding in my research, as well as environmental sustainability. So... I really, really like what I'm studying. It's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, that's cool. I didn't. So, what is that? How do you apply that? And, like, how will that be applied in the future? How does that work? Well, I'm hoping that it'll be applied in the future with whatever job or career that I end up in. Mm-hmm. Um, because I find, especially in the world of, of school and like academia, is that a lot of research and knowledge is produced. And it's like, okay, great. Like, you found this really cool. Um, new piece of information that should be shared with the rest of the world but oftentimes it kind of just gets stuck in a journal article or you Mm. don't see it being applied to real life very often Um, I mean I'm only a year into my master's so I I could be wrong about that like maybe a year down the road when I'm defending my thesis I can see more areas where the knowledge is applied 
Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm hoping like the goal of my master's is that the information that I gather from my study, I'm really hoping to be able to take it into outdoor education. And um, my research has to do with children. So I'm hoping like to improve lives for children and nature. So yeah, it, it's pretty exciting, but we'll we'll see. That's cool. That's cool. A practical approach. I mean, that makes sense. I think you're right, actually. I do think a lot of really good information and things that actually affect us um, that get studied by masters or PhDs or whatever sometimes does just get stuck in an article and never in like a journal, but like never in an actual like a New York Times article or like an article that someone will read and you you know you you find that out later and you're like oh this has been knowledge for like 15 years and you're like what exactly <laughs> it yeah like I'm learning about really cool concepts such as like sense of place and like how people build relationships with the environment and these articles that I'm citing are from like 2008 2010 and I'm like oh my gosh this has been around for so long and <laughs> how did I not know this <laughs> until 2020 like it's crazy, but it's really cool. Yeah. So is it like the way that people interact with their environment? Is that what you're kind of getting into studying or it's so interesting? Yeah. Yeah, actually. So I, I should say the topic <laughs> of my study, it's um, the effects of water-based outdoor education on children's relationship with the environment. So mm. I'm basically asking the question of if we get children out in nature, so into a program that's known as outdoor education, um, but even taking it a step further in specifically a water-based context, will they be able to generate a relationship with the environment? And if they do or or don't, what does that look like? Mm. So will they demonstrate things like um, PEB and in, in research that basically means pro-environmental behavior? So will they be inclined to go on the beach and to pick up that plastic bottle that they see um, or, or not, right? Like maybe after um, lunch during program, like will they throw their wrapper on the ground? Like mm. what will that relationship look like after they partake in these programs? So um, I'm really excited to kind of be sitting back and observing how kids interact in a water-based space. Yeah, that's cool. So, so is it like time-based? Like, okay, if this child is in involved in water type activities for six months and then do you watch them for a certain amount of time or what does that look like? Yeah so actually that's a great question because uh, unfortunately due to COVID-19 the um, the way I'm going to be conducting my research has changed I'm so sure much like I was actually supposed to be in Thailand in May to conduct oh, my man. study. Yeah and I was so stoked like I was supposed to be there for two weeks um, sitting back and observing a program known as SUPKIDS. And um, in research, like two weeks, it, that's not a lot of time. Um, like kind of like what you just said, like six months. Honestly, if I could sit back and watch programs for six months, like that would be gold. Um, but unfortunately, because my master's is only two years, you only have a certain amount of time to collect your okay. data. Um, so now due to COVID-19, uh, I'm hoping to be able to conduct my study in August for this summer. So um, yeah, a month isn't like a lot of time, but I'm right that it's enough <laughs> to gather enough data, but we'll see. That's cool. That's, mm -hmm. It's such a like specific, I know like I'm like harping on about this, but it's like such a specific thing to study. So for me, it's just, it's like pretty cool. Pretty interesting. 
Well, I love that you love it. <laughs> I'm very passionate about it. Well, and- you can tell. I think that's why it, it sounds so interesting as well. You know, it's like whenever someone's interest excited about something, it becomes like, you know, more exciting, I guess. Exactly. Like, do you honestly know how many times I have the conversation with other researchers who, like, I mean, most of the time they do have a passion for the topic they're studying. Um, but I found this, I guess, a lot more in my undergrad that people were like, oh, man, I'm so not excited to be like sitting down and writing a thesis. And I'm just like, why not? Like, aren't you studying something that you like? And a lot of them were actually telling me, no, I, I don't like what I'm studying. I'm literally just doing this to get my degree. And I'm just here I am banging my head against the wall because I'm like, no, no, like research can be so cool if it's something that you like. So yeah. <laughs> How did you come to that um, idea of what to study? Like, or, or doing research? I feel like that's so, um, I don't know, not a lot of people go into research at all. So. Yeah, actually, that that is very true. Like, it's kind of funny for me to be sitting back and like a lot of my friends that I did graduate with last year, like they're all now off in the workforce. And I was definitely one of the very few that stayed behind to kind of continue on my education. Um, but I think it actually really came to me when I was in my third year of my undergrad. Um, and I did it at the University of Waterloo in the Faculty of Environment. So that's very much where my like environment and sustainability background comes from. And I was on a co-op term here in Niagara, and I was working as an outdoor education instructor at Wood End Conservation Area. And we have a building here called the Walker Living Campus. And we basically just got to lead like day programs for schools Mm -hmm. that are a part of the DSBN. And like when I was completing that job, we had to fill out like a report and talk about like why this job kind of changed your perspective on the environment and just a very, very generalized report just to complete your co-op term. And so with it, I had to look for references. And so I read this one book called Last Child in the Woods by Richard Lowe. My yeah. mom, my yeah. mom uses that for teaching. That's crazy. I was like, I love that you're shaking your head because I tell people that and they're like, what is that? But oh you totally my gosh, <laughs> I do. Yeah, that's crazy. My mom teaches creative dramatics and runs um, like drama, drama in the classroom. So how to teach using like creative dramatics. And she use, she references that book all the time. That All is the time. Unbelievable. Okay, That's so crazy. Totally Go ahead. Me. Yes, I know what you're maybe explain it for people who haven't heard about it. Yeah, yeah. So for those of you who don't know, <laughs> um, it's an amazing book. I highly recommend you read it. <laughs> it was, I think it was first published in 2008, but then he edited it and republished it again in 2010. Mm-hmm. And the book, like the main concept of the book is talking about NDD which means nature deficit disorder. And when I first read about it, I was like, oh my God, this is actually a term. Like, what what does this mean? And it basically means that there's consequences for children um, when they receive like less environmental exposure. So when they're not immersing themselves in nature enough. So they experience things like lack of development and motorized skills, lack of risky play, like they're not putting themselves in these situations to really challenge their mind and their bodies. And really nature is very unique that some of those experiences children can only get in nature. Mm. So he's saying like, 
um, one of the biggest points is that children don't have the ability to understand um, their role as being a potential steward of the environment because they're not immersing themselves in nature. And because they're not doing that, they're not seeing how their day-to-day actions are affecting the environment that's around them. And so when I heard about that, I was just like mind blown. I, I couldn't believe that like that was my whole childhood was growing up playing. I literally have a forest right beside my house. So Mm -hmm. I was there like every day. Um, Getting on the water was kind of more so in my later teenage years, but I just couldn't believe that coming from an environmental background myself, that children were facing nature deficit disorder. And so I think that term really just kind of sparked my interest in research and kind of filling in that gap and helping create knowledge that helps empower children to get outside like I think it's so important so yeah (laughs) no I agree and I think like it's so interesting to to think about that when the last child in the woods and knowing that book and reading about it but I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens moving forward with all this COVID-19 stuff I'm sure that you're research brain is like how is this gonna affect people <laughs> because yeah um that that's something that I've always that I've wondered since this thing has started with all the like clean clean everything has to be so clean and you know like the outdoors is not clean and that's kind of the point it's like <laughs> you know it's like you're gonna like eat some dirt you know you're gonna you're gonna get out there and kind of get dirty and get messy and whatever so that's um an interesting thing that is kind of on her horizon, maybe. Oh, man, I could not agree with you more. Like, when I worked at that outdoor education job a few years ago, like, I would run into children who, like, were hiking through the woods, and they'd be like, oh, my goodness, I got mud on my shoe. And I'm literally just standing there like, uh, yeah, like, of course you are. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, that, that is being a part of nature. And I I cannot believe how much COVID-19 will change the landscape of that for children like in the future. Like already, um, I actually had my thesis proposal defense a few days ago. And that was one of the main things that we talked about, like probably for about a half an hour, we had to consider, okay, so not only like just the research process in itself, but like, we actually have to add COVID-19 as a factor that will influence like your observations, children's behaviors, like what you're going to see them demonstrate. And it's just like, yeah, I I definitely like I did not go into my master's thinking that a pandemic. Wow. Yeah. My research, right. But yeah, I I could not agree with you more. It's going to be so interesting to see how it does that. Yeah, what a, I mean, it's strange times for everybody, but I would be super interested. We'll have to, you know, try to get your information out there in a different way as soon as you come across it. Because I'm sure it's interesting for, you know, not just me. I'm sure it's interesting for other people that, you know, are outdoorsy, that have kids, that are also outdoorsy, that maybe don't. Because, I don't know, I think most parents want to do what they think is best for their kids. And I think that they don't understand like what you're talking about, the things that can happen when you're like too safety cautious with your kids, I guess. Yes. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Like I, I definitely see a lot of helicopter parents 
And I also see a lot of parents who who do let their kids kind of take the reins. And I think that's so important, right? Like I think, um, especially out in nature, it's the one place that children are supposed to be free. They're supposed to be having fun and like participating in risky play and doing all these challenges that they wouldn't do otherwise. And and I've seen the helicopter parent kind of like influence that too, you know, like I've seen the helicopter parent be like, oh, Johnny, like don't run too close to the water. And in my head, I'm like, no, like go dive in the lake. <laughs> yeah. Like I want you to go swimming. Like it's so interesting. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's very funny. So in your like department or the the place that you're studying, are there a lot of other people studying or researching things similar to what you're doing or is, how does that work? Yes. So actually I think the very unique thing about my study and definitely completing a literature review helped me realize this is that there is a lot of research on water-based outdoor education, but none of which includes the activity specifically of stand-up paddleboarding. Okay. So when I approached this topic to my department, they all thought it was pretty unique at Brock University. So I feel very fortunate to be studying this. I feel like um, it'll be really cool to find out the results of it. And um, yeah, I'm surrounded by super passionate people at Brock and professors who have immersed themselves like kind of around the topic, but none of them are like, super super in it if that makes any sense like it's kind of just unique enough that it's it's different that's cool that's cool how did you get into stand-up paddleboarding I got into stand-up paddleboarding when I was 10 years old and to me it's just it's a unique story too because I think like I I never grew up really around the water like I'm from Welland Ontario uh so we're like located right in the heart of the Niagara region and we have this big body of water that runs right through the middle of our town. It's called the Welland Canal. And I I never played on in or near it. Like never, ever yeah. was like really exposed to that body of water. Um, but when I was 10 years old, my family and I, we were vacationing up north. So on Lake Huron, there's a town called Sable Beach. Um, I'm sure you probably have heard of it before because there's tons of great lake surfers up <laughs> that way too. It's not too far from King Carden. It's okay, maybe yeah. like an hour up the the coast. Okay. And um, yeah, so I saw these two men one day, like we're all just hanging out on the beach and these two guys were bringing out these giant yellow Nash sup boards. And being a kid, I was like, are those giant bananas? Like I, I yeah. just had no idea what they were. Um, so they went out and they paddled around the lake and I looked at my parents and I was like, what is that? Like I was always that kid that wanted to try like any activity, any sport. And so I saw that and was like, oh my God, I want to try that. So the two men, like they came in and my parents looked at me and they said, Maddie, like you got to go and ask them what that, like what those things are. And I, I was like, oh no. Like, I just kind of like froze. Like I was very, very shy. And I was like, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. And my mom looked at me and I'll never forget. She said, Maddie, if you don't go up to them, you're going to regret this for the rest of your life. And boy, was she right, <laughs> because <laughs> that that moment really, truly changed my life. I, I ended up going up to them. I asked them what those things were. And they said, oh, these are stand-up paddle boards. Would you like to try? And they let me try them. And it was so much fun, like just hopping on a board that day and the perspective of the lake, of the water below me. Like I could see everything. Like the water was crystal clear, like just 
oh, such a pivotal moment. I, I, I don't think I'll ever forget that. And I probably tell that story on like every podcast I come on, but like, <laughs> I still think it, it's a really cool experience to share because I think it can teach people that no matter what background you come from, you know, you can, you can be introduced to something at any age and fall in love with it instantly. And I think the water does that for a lot of people. I think so too. I think it's like a magnet for a lot of people. Um, yeah. That's, that's awesome. So you, so where were you supping then? If you didn't live near a body of water, once you got introduced to the sport, how did you kind of continue on, I guess? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I, well, I definitely caught the bug that day. Like after that, I was like, oh my God, I need a paddleboard. Right. <laughs> and so for quite a few years after that, actually, I, I saved up my babysitting money because again, I, I was 10 at the time. So uh, I saved up my money for quite a few years. And then finally, one Christmas, my parents said, okay, Maddie, like, we'll help you buy a paddleboard. But the deal is that you need to pay for half. And uh, that'll be your only Christmas present this year. And I was like, okay, done. Like, deal. I settled. <laughs> I got this. Right. Um, so I think it was in 2012 that I received my first paddleboard. And then I was actually able to take it out in the spring of 2013 onto the Welland Canal. So in Welland, I'm probably about five, ten minutes away mm -hmm. from the water by driving. So I wouldn't be able to, like, unfortunately, put my board on a bike or anything and, <laughs> and hop right. over. But... Um, yeah, it's not too far away by car. So that's, that's how I got started into paddling and, and really hooked onto it. Like the canal, it's, it's a beautiful body of flat water. It's maybe like 200, maybe 250 meters wide. So it's, mm -hmm. it's not even like that wide. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's just like, it's the perfect place for any beginner to start paddling. Did you find other people that were also paddleboarding out in your area? Or was it mostly just you? Oh, yeah. Like, at, at the time, it was definitely just me. Like, I was out there, and the amount of stares that I got. Like, people <laughs> were like, what is that? Like, oh, my gosh, Taylor, if I could tell you the amount of times people have, like, yelled at me from the shore, being like, what is that? <laughs> Literally insane. And just this year is the year that I am seeing, like, this boom of like not even just paddleboarding but like outdoor recreation in general like bike sales are going like crazy and surfboards are going like crazy around yeah, here too yeah yeah seeing like I don't know what happened in 2020 maybe it, it's because the of the pandemic, pandemic I think <laughs> well I think that people the gyms are closed you can't be like you can't be social so what are you gonna do you know I that's what I think but I don't know <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think honestly, though, it's a great thing. Like I, I have never seen so many paddleboarders in my life than I have now. And it's June, like, it, we're not even fully into summer yet. Like, we're just getting started. So <laughs> so are you going out in like a wetsuit and everything? Do you have wetsuits and you're paddling year round or? Yeah, great question. Um, Actually, yeah, I, I look back and definitely the first year, like, man, did I ever look like a kook on that board? Oh, my God, I had this like, three two like half wetsuit like oh geez so dumb <laughs> yeah <laughs> but I, I didn't know any better right and no, like but that's, that's part of the whole like you gotta be a kook a little bit I think <laughs> but it's so true right and and again because like I was the only one around here doing it like I didn't have anybody to say like 
okay, Maddie, here's the proper equipment that you need. Um, so I, I had to figure it all out, like with my parents. And so primarily by myself too. <laughs> like, um, yeah, so now um, it totally depends on the season for what I'll wear. So we actually had a very warm winter this year. And so our Welland River, because we have a river that runs right beside the canal as mm -hmm. well. And the canal, like no matter what the temperature is, it always freezes in the winter, but our river didn't. So mm -hmm. I'll wear a dry suit out in the winter for that. And uh, very, very warm socks and uh, booties. Even sometimes like I'll switch out the booties for winter boots. Like I'll mm -hmm. literally just like throw just those on. Boots. <laughs> right. <laughs> as you would know too for cold water surfing, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I wear that in the winter and then spring you can get a little more relaxed. Like you can wear like, I usually wear like three, two, uh, wetsuit pants and booties and cause you just get so hot like up top but yeah you still need yeah. to be safe if you fall in right so yeah and then summer I can wear shorts in a in a t-shirt <laughs> so thank goodness for warm weather <laughs> right right um how did you get into the competitive nature or the competitive side of supping because I saw that in the email that you sent me that I'm not going to list what you listed because I forgot, but why don't you just tell us the, <laughs> about all that stuff? Because it's cool. It's really good. Cool. I didn't even know that there was so many competitions around stand-up paddleboarding, which I sh feel like I should have known that, but I really did not. Oh, my gosh. Honestly, so many people still don't know. Like, it's definitely this, like, hidden gem that we have here and and I guess like all around the world too like because you can compete internationally with stand-up paddle boarding but it's not something that's very prominent here in Canada like in the United States it's blown up like crazy but yeah in Canada not a lot of people know that you can race uh stand-up paddle boards so I I got started in okay what year is it so it's 2020 this would have been my fifth year with the Ontario Sup Series if COVID-19 didn't happen. <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess like five years ago then, um, I was introduced to it through a sponsor um, because I hosted a stand-up paddleboarding fundraiser here in Welland. And so one of the sponsors of the event had told me like, hey Maddie, like, did you know you can race stand-up paddle boards? Like, do you want to ride a stand-up paddle board during the fundraiser this year? That's specifically a race board. Mm -hmm. And I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, wait, what? Like there, there's race boards. And, and the design was like completely different than an all around paddle board. So I had never seen a board like this. And I got on it. And I just loved the feeling that a race board gave me like you can just go so much faster. And oh, I just I love speed. I love for speed, <laughs> <laughs> especially on the water. And you probably feel the same too with surfing, right? Like just there's no better feeling than catching that wave and, and having that great momentum with you. And a stand up paddleboarding race board gave me that that feeling and yeah I just I knew after that I was like okay I gotta try a race and so locally what I could find was a race series called the Ontario Sup Series and so yeah my first race I, I went to Barrie which is about three hours north of Welland here and I paddled oh my god so dumb I literally paddled this like one kilometer loop like it was literally just a square I came in and I was so happy because I'd gotten second place and I looked at my mom and I was like mom like I got second like you know I didn't get first but I didn't get last and she looks at me and she's like 
literally, Maddie, we just drove like three hours for an 11 minute race. (laughs) She lost it. She couldn't believe it. But those 11 minutes were enough to get me hooked on on racing for essentially what I hope to do for the rest of my life. That's so cool. What's the difference between the regular stand-up paddleboard and the race boards? And then how is that different from what you, what do you use if you're paddleboard surfing? Ooh, great question. So um, yeah, for stand-up paddling, all of those boards are like, they're totally shaped very differently Mm -hmm. um, for the purpose of, of what you're paddling. So uh, an all-around board is probably what you see most often and what most people think about when they when they think of stand-up paddleboarding. So it's kind of like, um, I guess, a long, like, oval-shaped board, like a, a longer version of a surfboard. Mm-hmm. And on average, I'd say they're about 10 foot 6 inches long. And then they're pretty wide, too, because you want a nice, good, stable board for someone who's a beginner and mm-hmm. just leisurely paddling. So they're about, I'd say, 33 on average inches wide. And then a uh, stand-up paddling race board, it's kind of the same, but they've made it longer and a lot more narrower to make the board more aerodynamic, to, to cut through the water faster and to be able to handle different conditions like chop. Um, you can actually surf on, on race boards, which is crazy. Um, so a lot of them are built to, with a a concave channel on the bottom, like just underneath the deck to be able to catch those bumps and surf some waves too. So for example, the race board that I have, it's about 14 feet long and 23 and a half inches wide. So quite super narrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, uh, a sub surfboard is kind of like a mix of both. So the shape too can be like other surfboards like there's sub surfboards that have like twin fin or like all that jazz <laughs> um like different shapes at the bottom like by the tail like fish shape um uh yeah I wrote a fish shape sub surf so that's I think cool ago, which was a lot of fun yeah it was like oh my gosh let's see how this goes but it was great and uh that board was eight foot six long and then it was about 31 inches wide so still pretty wide um, cause you, you kind of need that stability on the great lakes because right. <laughs> our, our waves aren't the best like the ocean. Um, yeah. And then you just, you have to use a shorter paddle as well when you surf. And are using one of those, like, um, I know they have the fiberglass, the ones that are really light or whatever. Is that what you're using for racing and then same for surfing? Yep. Yeah. Same thing. Like most of the boards, you know, like an EPS foam base and then covered with, fiberglass epoxy resin yeah all that jazz yeah Yeah, so definitely when I'm surfing it's it's funny I'm so much more like particular about my board because I'm always worried about like dinging it whereas like I don't know why in racing it's the same materials but I just find like my paddle doesn't like bang the side of my board as often or like I'm not worried about rocks or things like that versus when I'm surfing it's definitely a lot more gnarlier (laughs) that's yeah yeah yeah, that's cool. I tried, I did try subsurfing. It was not. No way. Oh, oh for tell me about yeah, it. I just think it's so, for me, and I know everybody has different tastes, but for me, it was so awkward to have something in my hand. I just could not, like, I couldn't do all of those things at once. Like, it was just too much. And I've, I've subbed. I used to, like, um, 
at third coast i used to do like sub tours and sub lessons just very base level but i at least know how to do that but you give me a bump on the lake on that thing and guess what i'm off of it like it is not i i don't know why and i feel like i talked to robin about this too like there's just something about the the transition from like trying to catch a wave and then I don't know. I'm so used to the popping up aspect of surfing that it just, nope, (laughs) did not work out. Not saying it won't ever work out. Just saying that, you know, so when I see people stop surfing, I'm just, I think it's so cool because then you've got this, you know, and they're like dragging the, the, um, paddle in the thing in the ground or in the water to maneuver around. I just think it looks cool. I, you know what, I totally agree. And I'm, um, I think too, like, I'm also like kind of opposite of you. Like I, I envy surfers because I'm like, man, my pop-up sucks, but like, I can totally stand on a board and I love the perspective that I have because I can see a set coming in. So I know, whereas like, so actually, so a couple of weeks ago, for example, I was out in Port Coburn surfing, like SUP surfing. And I was like one of the only people on a, on a SUP surf. And I'm looking over to my right and I'm watching all of these shortboarders, like they're kind of just poking their head up, like really looking to, to see like, where's that wave? And so actually at one point there was this guy, like we were chatting a bit. He was right beside me. He was telling me he was from Toronto. And at one point we literally just stopped mid conversation. And I looked at him and I was like, yo, a big set's coming. Like you got to get this next one. And he's like, Oh, okay. And then he turns around and, and he goes and um, yeah. And, and I have like totally mad respect for that. Like, I went surfing a couple years ago in Nicaragua with Surf the Greats. Um, so you probably know like Antonio and all those guys. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I went on one of their surf trips. Oh, and awesome. Yeah, it was it was pretty funny. Like that whole trip, like people were making fun of me. They're like, Maddie, like, where's your paddle? And I'm like, shut <laughs> up, guys. I'm I'm enjoying this eight-foot foam wave storm <laughs> right yeah. now. <laughs> so let me have some fun here. But but it was challenging. It was so challenging. Like getting out past the surf break and like turtle rolling. Like I just was so put in like an uncomfortable position, but like it was so amazing. Like I loved it. I loved that challenge. So I, I, I have mad respect for you guys that like you can just pop up and you can do that. Like that's, that's crazy. Well, I think it's mutual. Cause like I said, man, I've tried, I tried the, the sub surfing <laughs> and the thing is, is that, and this sounds rude, but I think as surfers, we think that it's super easy. And I know, especially when I lived in New Zealand, man, those boys hated the suppers. They hated them. Oh, oh my God. Yes. It was like, because it, it was, it was so competitive. And I think it was because you know, you guys can see the waves first. And so you can position yourself in the right spot. And I mean, the suppers where I was living, they weren't like getting the peak and getting right in like the best part of the wave, but you know, sitting a little bit outside a little wide and, you know, catching like not the reform, but you know, the smaller section of the wave. Mm -hmm. And like, if anyone was going to get hassled, it was a sup guy. (laughs) Or girl, you know, like if anyone's getting hassled, it's those guys. And so I think I kind of just thought, oh, like, oh, it's so easy, blah, blah, blah. Wrong, 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 wrong. <laughs> I was so, yeah, I was wrong about that for sure. Um, oh, there that's was hilarious. Oh, well, again, kook, kook move, right? Like, <laughs> oh, it's so easy to be a soft, soft. 
<laughs> Sub Surfer, you guys are so lame. And then, oh, actually, no, 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 wrong, wrong. But I, I honestly think just like surfing in general is is hard. But it so is many hard. People look at it and they're like, "That looks so cool, man!" Like I totally want to throw a shaka in the air yeah. and catch a wave. Yeah. And I'm like. Yeah, like, of course, like, you know, I, I definitely want to be that inviting person into the water. Like, right. I want more people, especially here in Canada, to surf. But I warn them. I say, it's not easy. Like, it's really not easy. And especially with the, the Great Lakes waves that you've talked to probably everybody about, it's it's hard to catch waves. And people are like, yeah, yeah, no, it's okay. And then I watch them come in from a session. And they're like, yeah, I just got pounded. And I'm like, Yeah. <laughs> Well, and that's the thing I used to tell people too, is I'm like, yeah, get a surf lesson first time. And then you just got to go like eat shit for like two months straight. (laughs) Like that's how you actually like learn. I'm sure it's the same with like supping or sub surfing. Like you just, you kind of have to make some mistakes to learn what your style is, what works for you, different things work for you. But like, it's hard. It's super hard. Yes, I I totally agree because honestly, like surfing on the Great Lakes, that's how I was introduced to it. I I took a lesson with Surf the Greats mm-hmm. um, because what had happened was they were also a sponsor for my fundraiser back in, I think they joined us in 2015. Mm-hmm. And so when I found out that you could surf on the Great Lakes, like I just kept an eye on all of their um, like forecasting workshops and their their lessons because they said like literally, I think it says somewhere on their website, like, they go wherever the wind blows because that's the only way we're going to get waves here. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget. I think it was like a Saturday night. I got like this notification. They were like, okay, Maddie, like we're going to do a lesson tomorrow morning, like 6 a.m. Uh, Port Coburn. And for me, that's like my closest wave break. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, sure. Done. Like, let's do it. And I pulled out like my sup um, wetsuit. I-, I didn't even have a hood. I think the instructor, his name's Maddie. He was like, yeah, you can borrow my hood. And I was like, okay. And it's, it was, I think it was like November. And here we are like just on a random Sunday, like trying to play in the whitewash and go surfing. And, and I would highly recommend that for everybody. Like, I think a lesson is so needed, especially on the Great Lakes. Cause even that too, you can look at whitewash and you can be like, okay, well, that's nothing. Like that's not even a wave, but then you get out there and you still get pounded. Like it's crazy. No, the waves <laughs> The lake waves are, it's a different monster. That's for, for very sure. It's a totally <laughs> different monster. So what is the um, fundraising thing that, that you mentioned a couple times? What is that and how did you, is that your fundraiser? Yeah, it, it is. I, I do like to say, though, it's very much a family initiative as well. Like, even mm-hmm. though I had the idea for the fundraiser, um, I would not be able to do it without my family. Like, they mm-hmm. have always been my number one support team and they help me with all the behind the scenes. Um, so I guess like to say, like we, we all founded it in 2014 and it came from just an idea of me being introduced to stand up paddleboarding, like at the perfect time. So I think I told you, like I first got out in 2013, like with my own board. Um, but in previous years, so in 2011, I lost two friends of mine to two different types of cancer. Mm. Um, Julia Turner, she was my high school classmate and she passed away when she was 15 due to glioblastoma. And, uh, that's actually, it's a very aggressive form of a brain tumor. And then earlier that same year in March of 2011, I lost my next door neighbor, Lynn Lambert, who was a local high school teacher here in Welland. And she was about 
37 when she passed away due to a rare form of skin cancer. And so like losing two people in the same year was like, I I tell people all the time, I, I have no words for it. Like it was just one of the most horrible and traumatic experiences that not only I experienced, but, but my whole community, like Welland loved these two young ladies. And so when they passed away, I just like had this hole in my heart that I was like, man, this sucks. Like, I got to fill this somehow. Like, how am I going to do this? And I think because stand-up paddleboarding came along just a couple years later, um, when I first started taking it out on the canal, I had thought about what I was looking like down on and said, hey, like, what if I make a fundraiser out of literally what I'm standing on right now? And in Canada, like our most prominent person for fundraising is is Terry Fox. He's quite a big icon for like running across Canada for his Marathon of Hope. So in my head, I was like, oh, that's cool. Like Terry Fox ran a distance. So why don't I like paddle a distance? And again, the Welland Canal was really the only place I knew of <laughs> around right. here. And so I, I paddled 10 kilometers down the Welland Canal in 2014 to raise funds for brain cancer research. And since then, it's taken off into a community initiative. So every year people come and join me for the paddle. Like the first year I did it solo. But after that, it was like, hey, whoever wants to come out on not only like a paddle board, but I think we had an OC1 one year come out, um, canoes, kayaks, like anything you want, any paddling craft, come on out. And so this year was supposed to be year seven. So we've been running it for quite a while now. And it's been really, really fun and really a great way to give back to two amazing people that's awesome yeah (laughs) yeah that's such a such a great idea and did you when you find sponsors how does that work do they sponsor you per mile or I mean per kilometer or how does that yeah man I've learned so much about sponsorships over the I'm sure yeah because honestly Taylor it literally started out as me just like sending emails to anyone and everyone and the people who have responded back are the most amazing people like surf the greats. Like they saw me in my second year and they thought, yeah, like let's sponsor you. And we've been able to grow this partnership ever since. And Antonio and and Lucas have changed my life so much. And um, yeah, like basically what I ask for sponsors is to make a minimum donation of $200. And with that, like their logo gets put on the t-shirt um, they can come to the event site and we have lots of grass space so they can set up a booth, sell like any merchandise. Um, and then in return to like I help promote them online, like social media, all the newspaper articles, um, et cetera. So it, it's a really cool partnership between both of us. But the people who have responded and who have supported on board, I think are truly and very uniquely special. They're great That's- people. That's cool. And then, so do you, after you do the fundraiser, how does it work in terms of donating the money? Do you just like give them a check or how does that usually work? Yeah. So we are in partnership with the Canadian Cancer Society. So yeah. So all of our money specifically goes to brain cancer research. And last year I just started working with a research officer who has allowed me to pick actually like specific research projects that I want the money to go to. So I get to read. Yeah, it's really cool. Like last year was the first year I got to do that because years before it was like, okay, here's brain cancer research. It all just goes into this pot. Uh But now it's like, okay, here's brain cancer research. But like, here's a document of all the single like research activities that are happening. And so it lists like the doctor's name, the research institution that they're with, and like a quick summary of their project. 
in as like simple scientific terms as much as possible because some of them are really hard to read I'm like oh my god I don't know what that is <laughs> so, right. yeah so then I, I read through them and I get to be like okay this is the one that I want to donate to how did so. you get the opportunity to choose through that is it because you now have this research background so they're like oh she'll kind of understand these like <laughs> we'll give her some options Honestly, it was just because like a community officer, so her name's Heather Scott. She works with the Canadian Cancer Society. She got hired on with them a couple years ago and she had heard about on board and then she had asked me, she's like, oh, has anybody from the Canadian Cancer Society asked you if you wanted to do this, like to pick a specific project? And I said, no, I was like, honestly, every year I've just like given them money and they're like, okay, thanks. Bye. And she's like, well, I want to change that. She's like, I want you to be able to see exactly where your money's going. And I was like, okay, cool. Like I'm down, I'm open to it. And so she emailed me a document and I mean, it kind of sucks. I would love to talk about it. Like the projects that are on there are so cool, but it's very, very confidential <laughs> information. I'm sure, I'm sure yeah. Yeah, but it, it has been really a very big privilege to be able to read that and, and to pick projects. That's so it's cool. Like how involved you can be. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. And, and I never knew that. Like that wasn't something that I went out of my way to do. Like that mm-hmm. was coming up to me and, and seeing the potential of on board. And that to me was very special. That's so cool. That is yeah. very cool. So Thank I'm going to ask you the last three questions just so we can wrap things up so that you can get to work. I know you kind of were able to squeeze this in. Um, <laughs> so before Thank work. you, Tim Vallow, for letting me do a podcast this morning before work. <laughs> oh, yes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. He works I mean, for Paddle Niagara, so it's more stand-up paddle boarding. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, there's a theme here. I'm feeling a little bit of a theme in your life. Oh, there truly is. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> so what is the weirdest wave you've ever surfed or maybe the weirdest location that you've stopped? Oh, oh, you know what? I should have known this question was coming because <laughs> I've heard so many of your podcasts and I, wow, I didn't even think of this question. Wow. It's um, funny because everybody gets surprised with this question, even though it's in the email I sent to everybody. But every time I ask it, people are like, wow, what a question. <laughs> but you know what, though? This is like my favorite question, though. And especially because your name is Weird Waves Podcast. Like, that's so brilliant. Like, congrats for you for coming up with that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, you know what? I, and I think you probably see the trend along most of the Great Lakes surfers, but I would have to say a wave on the Great Lakes for sure. Like, uh, I can't think of a specific one, but definitely like I've gotten the most beat up and the most tossed around in Port Coburn. So that would be Lake Erie specifically. <laughs> yeah. 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 And what, what is your, was your biggest oh shit moment while stand up paddleboarding? Like your biggest, like maybe it was super gnarly or it was a sketchy situation something like that yeah okay I would definitely have to say it was in 2018 I had the opportunity to be um on team Canada actually to compete at the ISA World Sup and paddleboard championships in Hanan China oh and we paddled yeah it was so cool like we paddled in the South China Sea but for me that was like 
the biggest waves I've ever experienced on a stand-up paddleboard. Like, I thought Nicaragua was insane, but, like, oh, my God, absolutely not. Like, you are on twice as big of a board <laughs> as you are surfing. And um, the one day, it was before our technical racing, so we had gone out to train. And my one friend, Ariel, she's like, hey, Maddie, Kate, like, we're going out into the waves now. And I'll never forget standing on the beach and just seeing these, like, monstrous waves just crashing and I was like oh my god I literally was like how am I going to handle this on a stand-up paddleboard and kind of like you described earlier right like sometimes it can be very awkward with a paddle in your hands and I mean luckily you have the timing of the ocean that because it comes in sets you can pick your window to get the out there right Um, (laughs) but yeah there were times like I definitely like I got smashed around so much like I I definitely learned the timing of the ocean uh, and how important that is. And I'll never forget the one time I actually, I made it past the wave break. I will never forget this wave that like it had just missed like its breaking point by the time the nose of my board had gone up and over it. So literally for me, I was like, I am paddling over a mountain of water. Like, and, that, and I think when I was doing that, I just was like, oh, my God, don't fall off, don't fall off, don't fall off. <laughs> like, so I would have to say that that for sure for me was my biggest oh, shit moment, like realizing yeah. just the power of the ocean. Yeah. So my last question for you is what is next for you? What is next for me? Oh, man. Well, I think um, I, I have clearance to do my my research for my master's now. So I think, um, again, just combining my passion of stand-up paddleboarding and research, I'll be able to move forward in my career at Brock. Um, and then, yeah, I think after that, like when I graduate, I definitely, I want to work in something like outdoor education, maybe even start my own sub kid school here in Welland because it's where I started. So I have a lot of um, love for <laughs> for the canal now. Um but yeah, I'm I'm a very also like go with the flow kind of person, just like the waves, you know? <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. But yeah, like I'm just I'm so excited to have new experiences. I hope to travel, I hope to definitely surf and, and sup surf in more places around the world, not just here in Canada, like get out of the Great Lakes a little bit. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Try yep. some fun ocean swell for sure. And yeah, just honestly just keep having fun. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. This was so fun. What a great way to start the, my day. <laughs> oh, no, thank you. I, I am so glad I got to meet you because, again, I've heard so many of your other podcasts and I thought, man, this girl's cool. Like, I got to oh, talk thanks. to her. <laughs> like, we have to chat. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. And I'll let you go because I won't let you be late for work. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, Taylor, it was such a pleasure talking to you today. Yeah, so. you too. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Okay. Thank you, Taylor. You too. Take Bye. care. Bye. And that was episode 49. I really hope that you guys enjoyed it. I will leave some information about the foundation in the description so that all of our listeners can be a part of it. And yeah, you know exactly what I'm going to say, that I will see you next Monday with another new episode and it is our 50th episode next week. I cannot even believe that is possible. We have been doing the podcast for almost a whole year now and it's just, it's just incredible. So thanks guys. 
for everything, for listening, and we will see you next week, next Monday for episode 50. Bye.